greatest stories in the world are the stories Christ told. But there's something very extraordinary about those stories, and I'm wondering, my friends, whether you've noticed. May I remind you of a few of them? And see if you can find what the most extraordinary feature is of the characters of the stories. Let's take one or two. I'm reading from Luke 16. There was a rich man who had a steward, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his goods. And he called him and said to him, What's this I hear about you? Turn in the account of your stewardship. You can no longer be steward. And the steward said to himself, What shall I do, since my master is taking away the stewardship from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do, so that people may receive me into their houses when I'm put out of the stewardship. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. The steward said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly. Write write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? He said, A hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. And the master commended the dishonest steward for his shrewdness. But the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Well, you know that story well, my friends. But have you noticed anything that's peculiar in it? Hold on. Let's take one or two others before we get it summed up. I want to suggest to you that there is an extraordinary feature of these stories that offers us a clue to everlasting joy and happiness. Well, here's the next one, also from Luke 16. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus, full of sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that you in your lifetime receive your good things, and Lazarus in like manner evil things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. Well, you've heard that story before, my friends, the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And the others are familiar too, for example, in chapter 18 of Luke. In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor regarded man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Vindicate me against my adversary. For a while he refused. But afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor regard man, yet because this widow bothers me, I'll vindicate her, or she'll wear me out by her continual coming. And in the same chapter, another story from Christ, beginning at verse 9. Two men went up into the temple to pray, a Pharisee and a tax collector. And the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or like this here publican. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing afar off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven but beat his breast, saying, God, 
be merciful to me, the sinner. Well, you know that story too. In the twelfth chapter, there's a very modern man, a wealthy agriculturalist. Let's look at that story. Verse 16 of Luke 12. The land of a rich man brought forth plentifully, and he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have nowhere to store my goods. He said, I'll do this. I'll pull down my barns and build larger ones. There I'll store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Now I turn to chapter 14 and verse 16. Another of these incomparable stories of Christ. A man once gave a great banquet and invited many, and as the time for the banquet drew near, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, all is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I bought a field. I must go out and see it. I pray you have me excused. Another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen. I go to examine them. I pray you. Have me excused. Another said, I've married a wife, therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported this to his master. And the householder in anger said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city. Bring in the poor and maimed and blind and lame. For I tell you, none of those men who are invited shall taste my banquet. And now another from chapter 19. Verse 12. A nobleman went into a far country to receive a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten pounds and said to them, Trade with these till I come. But his citizens hated him, sent an embassy after him, saying, We don't want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he commanded these servants, to whom he'd given the money, to be called to him, that he might know what they'd gained by trading. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your pound has made ten pounds more. He said to him, Well done, good servant, because you've been faithful in the very little, you'll have authority over ten cities. The second came, saying, Lord, your pound has made five pounds. He said to him, You ought to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your pound, which I laid away in a napkin. For I was afraid of you. You're a severe man. You take up what you didn't lay down. You reap what you didn't sow. And the master said to him, I'll condemn you out of your own mouth, you wicked servant. You knew I was a severe man, taking up what I didn't lay down, reaping what I didn't sow. Why then did you not put my money into the bank? That at my coming I could have collected with interest. Well, we could go on and on and on. But have you noticed there is a strange similarity about the villains in Christ's stories. If you see it, it will offer you a key to unlock the door of heaven and of life here as well. For the extraordinary thing, the most extraordinary thing about the villains in Christ's stories is their ordinariness. Instead of a strange viciousness and extreme cruelty, or a gross impurity, we find they're just ordinary, selfish people. 
Now that is extraordinary. To illustrate, the steward we started with, he was a likeable rogue, too fat to dig, too proud to beg, but no slouch in thinking up plans for the future. He helps others in helping himself, so what's wrong with that? Couldn't we make him into a business manager somewhere? And then, you remember, in the same chapter, there was another man that we looked at. A man that knew how to make money, and there's no crime in that. We need men that can make money. He believed in live and let live. He was tolerant to the beggar. You and I wouldn't like a beggar living at our gates. Just to think of that would give us indigestion. But this man gave him some food. That's why the beggar was there. Beggars are pretty shrewd in the Orient when they look for a pitch. So the strange thing about this rascally rich man is he doesn't seem very rascally. He doesn't seem very villainous. Not at all. And as for that judge in chapter 18, the one that didn't fear God or regard man, well, there are a lot of people like that. But ultimately, he does a good thing. He relieves the widow. Oh, yes, he did it for a selfish reason. But uh, isn't much of our decent activity done for selfish reasons? And what about the man that went up to pray at the temple? He fasted twice in the week. That means two days without food. I can't help admire him. He was a religious man because he was a man of prayer. He wasn't greedy or dishonest or an adulterer. He was meticulous with his tithe paying. He even paid tithe on herbs. And yet he was a lost man, according to Jesus. Imagine that. Then we looked at the story of the rich agriculturalist. And you remember, it didn't say that he was a Sabbath breaker or an adulterer or a murderer. He was just rich, and it had been gotten through industry. He was a planner. We're not told he was an oppressor. What a strange villain to put in the story, and it should make us run cold, because all these people are like ourselves. They're extraordinary in their ordinariness. And as for the Great Supper, their great sin was to turn down an invitation. Ever done that? We could go on and on with these stories. In each one of them, the thing that is surprising is that the folks are very much like ourselves. If we were to read the parable of Matthew 25 about the sheep and the goats, we would find Jesus saying to the to the saved, inasmuch as you, as you did it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it unto me. But to the villains who were turned away, he says, inasmuch as you did it not, so here are the lost, and they're not kept out of heaven because of anything they've done. They're kept out of heaven because of something they haven't done. Does that scare you, my friends? It scares me. The lost are people who fail to do, not people who've done terribly. They fail to do because they fail to see. Remember they said to Jesus, when did we see thee naked or hungry or in prison? And Jesus had to remind them, inasmuch as ye did it not to one of the least of these, my brethren, ye did it not to me. The people who'll be lost at last won't be terrible sinners. They'll be respectable sinners. They'll be people that sit in our church pews, run our government, become famous for their good deeds. Some of them will be like that, at least. 
what Jesus is saying to us is that the path to hell is ordinary, not outlandish. All you've got to do is be your natural self. Aren't we always told that we ought to be natural? Jesus says if you are natural, you'll be lost. In one of his stories, Christ spoke about the 99 who needed no repentance, the 99 just men. And I, as a boy, I could never work that out. But of course, the meaning is there are 99 out of every 100 who think they're just men, who think they don't need to repent because they lead respectable lives. They're like that rich agriculturalist. They're like the Pharisee who goes to the temple to pray. They're like the people that were doing good deeds and refused the invitation to the wedding. The 99 just men were the Pharisees, and the Pharisees were very religious. But they'd substituted rules for Jesus. When Christ spoke about the blind leading the blind and both falling into the ditch, He's talking about religious people. Christ said, they that are whole need not a physician. He also said, blessed are the poor. Do you know what that word poor means? It doesn't mean someone who's simply poor as we understand it. It means someone who's completely destitute. It means the poverty, like the cringing of a suppliant beggar. It's the word that's used for Lazarus in Luke 16, the beggar we just read about. No word has more humiliation in it than the Greek word here used. The poor man was one who fully realised his own inadequacy, his own worthlessness, his own destitution. And to receive the blessing of God, he put his trust in God, his only hope. He's the man who's realised by himself life is impossible. Now remember, friends, I'm talking on Christ's statement, blessed are the poor, for there's the kingdom of heaven. These poor ones are those that know their true condition. But who also find out that with God all things are possible. The poor who are blessed are those who become so dependent on God, they're independent of all else. But the ordinary man in the world is so respectable, he doesn't feel his need of God until he gets no blessing. You take the Pharisee in Luke 18. George Buttrick writes of him like this. The Pharisee prayed, I thank thee, but his prayer was such only a name. He had no real thanksgiving to offer, for he was under no sense of blessings received. He had no plea to make, for he was unconscious of any lack or need. He used the word God, but it was only a glance in the general direction of heaven as a prelude to a song of self-praise. Notice he first congratulated himself on his virtues of omission. He was not at all other men, the rest of mankind. He was not an extortioner, nor unjust, nor adulterous, not even like this publican. The poor publican, standing at a distance, is dragged into the prayer as a dark foil for the Pharisee's gleaming whiteness. Measured by other men, the Pharisee towered aloft. It had not occurred to him to measure himself by the sky, a mountain shames a molehill until they're both humbled by the stars. Thomas Carlyle has a dramatic passage in which he conducts the heedless Louis XIV of France to the eternal judgment seat. He writes like this, Yes, poor Louis, death has found thee. No palace walls or gorgeous tapestries could keep him out.
Time is done, and all the scaffolding of time falls wrecked with hideous clangour around thy soul. The pale kingdoms yawn, and there thou must enter naked, all unkinged. And suddenly Carlyle turns upon his readers and says this, And let no meanest man lay flattering unction to his soul. Louis was a ruler, but art thou not also one? His wide France looked at from the fixed stars is not wider than thy narrow brick field, where thou too doest faithfully or unfaithfully. So the problem with this villain in Christ's story is that he was a respectable villain who'd forgotten to look at the stars. He thought his virtue was a wide France, and that other men only had a narrow brickfield. The Pharisee also informed heaven of his virtues of commission. So by the tests of omission or commission, he was equally justified. He fasted twice in a week, even though the law might have been fulfilled if he'd fasted only once a year. He gave tithes of everything that he'd gained, even of mint, anise and cumin, which the Lord didn't even require him to tithe. What was wrong with him? His virtue was negative. His goodness was mummery. He lacked the essential spirit of goodness, that spirit which has as a necessary element a humble and a contrite heart. All his righteousness was vitiated by that lack. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And what about this rich man in Luke 12? He came by his wealth honestly. His farm yielded heavy crops. He didn't add field to field by oppression or devour widows' houses by fraud or cheat the hireling and his wages. He did none of these things. He wasn't a miser. He said to himself with a certain bonhomie, take thine ease, eat, drink and be merry. He was far-sighted, practical, had all the marks of a good businessman. When his harvest taxed the capacity of his barns, he built greater barns. In the realm of finance, he thought in big terms and moved with sure step. He definitely arrived. His neighbours greeted him with the deference due to the successful. In a modern city, he might be one of the key men. But Jesus called him a fool. He failed to keep a clear space between himself and his possessions. Things are not what they seem, my friends. Actually, this rich man was a poor man. This free man was a slave. He was a slave to things. He thought he had things, but things had him. The gulf between himself and his possessions was real. His possessions cannot even answer him when he says, you are my life. He thought so persistently and with such concentration about his goods that the necessary line of distinction between him and his was erased. His life was lost in his livelihood. He was absorbed into his ownings. And of course he was an egotist. Things are a jealous God. They book no rival. I, that little pronoun which causes us so much trouble, occurs six times in this brief account. My or mine addressed to himself six times. No thought of God. My fruits. My grain. Were they really? Could he command the sap in the tree, the fertility in the soil, with sunrise and sunset under his control? If the rain had been withheld, where would have been his wealth? The scripture says the ground brought forth plentifully. The ground. 
God called him a fool because he was preoccupied with things. That's the way it was with the people that refused the invitation to the party. They were respectable, my friends, but they were respectably lost. They were preoccupied with the second best. Jesus said, my friends, that it was easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. It's possible to be rich in other things than money. Most people are rich in their respectability. Most people are rich in their supposed goodness. And that, my friends, is fatal. The tremendous impact of these stories of Jesus is that the way to hell is ordinary. That the villains who are lost are people just like us. How tragic. We haven't understood what the Bible teaches about sin. What God tells us about ourselves. God says that we're lost, straying, rebels, haters of God. Man isn't a sinner occasionally, but a sinner always. Not a sinner in part, with many good things about him, but wholly a sinner, with no compensating goodness, evil in heart as well as life, dead in trespasses and sins, an evildoer, under condemnation as an enemy of God, under wrath, a breaker of the righteous law and under the curse of the law. The scripture teaches that man has fallen, not this man or that man, but the whole race. In Adam all have sinned, in Adam all have died. It's not that a few leaves have faded or been shaken down. The tree has become corrupt, root and branch. The flesh, the old man, that is each man as he's born into the world, a son of man, a fragment of humanity, a unit in Adam's fallen body is corrupt. The sinner not merely brings forth sin, but he carries it about with him as his second self. He's a body, that is a mass of sin. Subject not to the law of God, but to the law of sin. The Jew, who was educated under the most perfect of laws, and in the most favourable circumstances, was the best type of humanity, of civilised, polished, educated humanity, the best specimen of Adam's sons. Yet God's testimony concerning him is that he's under sin. He's gone astray. He's come short of the glory of God. My friends, the outer life of a person is not the person. Just as the paint on a piece of timber is not the timber, as the green moss on the hard rocks, not the rock itself. The picture of a person is not the person. It's but a skillful arrangement of colours that look like the person. It is the bearing of the soul toward God that's the true state of the person. The man that loves God with all his heart's in a right state. The man that doesn't love him thus is in a wrong one. He's a sinner because his heart's not right with God. He may think his life's a good one, like these men in the parables. Others may think the same, but God counts him guilty, worthy of death and hell. The outward good cannot make up for the inward evil. The good deeds done to his fellow men cannot be set off against his bad thoughts of God. He must be full of these bad thoughts, so long as he does not love this infinitely lovable and infinitely glorious being with all his strength. Not to love our neighbour is sin, not to love a parent is greater sin, but not to love God is greater sin still. And there's another charge. Such a person doesn't believe on the name of the Son of God, nor love the Christ of God. That's the sin of sins. That his heart is not right with God is the first charge against him. That his heart is not right with the Son of God is the second. It's the second that's the crowning, crushing sin. 
carrying with it more terrible damnation than all other sins together. He that believeth not is condemned already because he is not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God, says John 3.18. He that believeth not God hath made him a liar because he believeth not the record that God gave of his Son, 1 John 5.10. He that believeth not shall be damned, Mark 16.16. The first sin the Holy Spirit brings home to the conscience is unbelief. When he, the Holy Spirit, has come, he'll reprove the world of sin because they believe not on me. My friends, these stories that Jesus told have an unsuspected depth. They tear the veil off our respectability and they show the charnel house underneath. They reveal us to be whitewashed tombs with dead men's bones within. What are we to do? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. From those that know their need, nothing is withheld. Salvation is hard, terribly hard, impossible for those that think they're good enough. But salvation is easy, wonderfully easy for those that know they deserve it not. My friends, God says, call upon me. Call upon me and I will deliver you. Look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. If we're looking anywhere else but to God, even that God that died on the cross in our place, if we look anywhere else, we will certainly be lost. But if we look there, my friends, we will certainly be saved. Will you not look today and keep looking? God bless you.